0: Well, good morning. Let's, uh, let's find our seats. We're gonna, uh, this morning is going to be a full morning. Um, normally, I like to have my notes at about a page and a half. And today, we have three pages. And so, uh, some of the stuff we're going to skim, since we're doing a, a topic this morning. Um, we decided to take a break from the normal Sunday school classes for the summer, and we're doing a series of one-offs. And this morning, we are going to consider the subject of why we, the pastors here, are premillennial. Why we're premillennial How many of you have heard that term before? Okay, so many of us are, f- are familiar, at least we've heard the term. And so first, we should probably define what the millennial kingdom is. And this is one of these subjects, th- this right here, when you, defer, when you define the term, is going to give a window into exactly what you think the millennial kingdom is. The, the word millennial comes from two words, Latin words. One, mill, meaning a thousand, and annum, meaning year. So millennial literally means a thousand years. And it's a kingdom. So it's a ruler over a people group in a land, a physical Kingdom. Biblically speaking, it is a physical kingdom where Christ rules over the nations with a rod of iron for a period of a thousand years. And that period of time is given in Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 to 7 where six times in those seven verses it talks about for a thousand years. Are we good to this point? There are many who would define that kingdom differently. Many would say that a thousand years is simply a way of saying it's for a long time. It doesn't necessarily mean a thousand years. And there are some who would say, well, you know what, it doesn't need to be a physical kingdom; it can be a spiritual kingdom, a means by which uh, things can occur. But again, uh, it can be spiritually, not requiring an actual physical land. We we hold that it is a literal kingdom, in a literal place with literal people and a literal ruler, and that ruler is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the book of Revelation, which we studied last year, in the book of Revelation, we find an eschatological timeline. If you look from Revelation chapter 4 all the way through Revelation chapter 22, you will find a basic timeline for the latter days. Chapters 4 to 18 detail the, a period of time, a seven-year period that is referred to as the tribulation and also as the great tribulation. And typically, the second half of that seven-year period is where the great tribulation occurs. That is when there is just incredible judgment, incredible pain, incredible suffering as God begins to bring judgment on unrepentant man and on the earth. You'll also see this referenced in Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27. And there's a term that you'll uh, find there in, De- in Daniel where he says 70 weeks. God tells him 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. It splits up into a, a period of 7, a period of 62, and a, a last week that is still yet future. So in the book of Revelation, in, in during the time of the tribulation that's when you have the seal judgments the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments chapters 4 to 18 focus on Israel you will not see a reference to the church in those chapters and whereas in chapters 2 and 3 you had um, the letters to the 7 to 7 churches from Asia Minor after that point the uh, the focus geographically shifts to Jerusalem and the focus is on the Jewish people, ethnic Jewish people, which again would be an indication that the era of the church age has been completed and is past, and the time of the Gentiles has concluded. After the tribulation, you have the second coming of Christ and you'll see this in Revelation 19. 11 to 21, Jesus leads the armies of heaven against the the beast and the false prophet and their armies at the battle of Armageddon. Satan's defeated, the beast and the false prophet are sent to the lake of fire and Satan is imprisoned in the abyss. You'll see that in Chapter 20, verses 1 to 15, where it talks about Christ's kingdom on earth. Satan is bound for a thousand years. He's literally imprisoned so that he's no longer able to deceive the nations, after which he's going to be turned loose for a short period of time. He's no longer free to be the accuser of the brethren. Now, last week when we were looking at the idea of suffering and we considered Job, Did you notice how Satan talked to God about Job? He he worships you and he blesses you because you have made him prosperous. But if you were to take those things away, he would no longer bless you. He would curse you to your face. And so God says, okay, fine, have Adam, just don't touch him. Satan goes through, takes everything that he has. And what does Job do? He bows down and worships and worships God and blesses him and does not curse him. And so Satan again comes before God and, uh, hey, have you considered my servant Job? He continue, he's upright. He's holding fast his integrity. And he has not cursed me as you said that he would. And Satan goes, well, wait a minute. And you can see him. Doing the finger. That came out bad. <laughs> Wagging his finger. You haven't let me touch him. Now you let me go after him personally, after his flesh and his bone, and he'll curse you to his face, to curse you to your face. And so again, you just see that you know there's always one more thing, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but that's what Satan does. He's the accuser for this thousand-year period of time. He's not going to be free to do that. The Old Testament and the, the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints are going to be raised from the dead and they're going to reign with Christ in this kingdom for a thousand years. We're already going to be there. And so now you have all of the redeemed reigning with Christ here on the earth. Now, that thousand-year period of time is primarily for the fulfillment of all of the promises that God made with Israel. In the Old Testament, there were a number of times where Israel was told there's a blessing and there is a curse. Has Israel found out? Have they discovered, have they now endured the curses promised by God for disobedience? Yes, they have. They know about the curses. Is God going to fulfill the blessings that were promised to them? Yes, he is. Now, here again, here's another place where there is a division to where there are some who would hold that the church has superseded Israel, that the church has replaced Israel as God's chosen people, and all of those promises that were made to Israel now fall to the church. Now, the only thing with that, nowhere in Scripture do you find promises made to the church regarding land you don't you won't find them and so again whether or not you maintain a distinction between the church and Israel and God's plans for Israel is going to determine how you view this period of time in this kingdom at the end of the thousand years Satan's released for a period of time and he comes out and he gets busy. And in that thousand year period of time, there have been a number of people born who are not redeemed. They have gone along and they've enjoyed the time of relative, in fact, not relative peace, there's been world peace. This is the period of time where you see that uh, people have taken their swords and they have pounded them and they've made them into farming implements. Why have they been able to do that? Because there's no global conflict. Nations are not rising up against nations. You don't have to have a standing army because there's no enemy to fight and so you've had a time of in peacefulness. You've had a time of long life. We're going to see those specifically here in a little bit. And Satan comes out, he deceives the nations, and they come up against Jerusalem for one last battle. God rains down fire from heaven and consumes them, and now we go to uh, the great white throne of judgment. And after you have Satan consigned to the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet and you have the unbelieving dead raised and judged and now all the unbelievers have gone to the lake of fire, now you enter into a period which is called the eternal state. So when you talk of um, ultimately being in heaven, that's that's what's being referred to the eternal state. That's where there's no sin, there's no crying, there's no sorrow, there's no pain, there's no grief, there's no shame, there's no dissatisfaction, there's no discontentment, and everything is as it, has, as it was meant to be. So the, the eternal state is how people typically refer to heaven. So when we, when we speak of uh, after death, we are going to be in heaven, that's what is being referred to as the eternal state. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm not getting too many deer in the headlights look just yet. All right. Now there are three primary views. I'm sorry. Is the eternal state the new heaven, the new earth, the creation? Okay, so the question is: is the eternal state the new heaven and the new earth? Yes, it is. That is where everything now, there's nothing else to change. Everything has been made new, and it's going to be absolutely uncontaminated by sin forever. Okay, so the question is is that all this other stuff has to play out before there is the real heaven. Yes. So in Revelation uh, 22, actually 21, you see that God has made a new heaven and a new earth. And that's after... All of these other judgments have occurred, and it goes through and it talks about the New Jerusalem and and the size of it. You know, it's 1,500 miles this way, 1,500 miles this way, 1,500 miles up, you know, 12 gates, each one of a single pearl. And it talks about the foundation and and, and all of those different things. That is going to be after everything has been judged, Satan's gone, and uh, the slate has been wiped entirely clean. Rick. Yes. Okay. So the question is, prior to the tribulation, has the church been removed? Has the church, has the rapture occurred? Now, yes. There's, you'll see that when it comes to the tribulation, again, there's, there's a number of views for all of these. We would hold to a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, we talked about, uh, we had a class on this a while back. Uh, and you can go back and pull the tape for that if you, if you would like. But yes, you have the removal of the church. Um, then you have the, the, the time of the tribulation because the time of the tribulation is primarily about the redemption of ethnic Israel. That's why everything talks about Israel. Everything's about Israel in the tribulation time. It's, the, it's, a, it's in Jerusalem. It is um, centers on the temple. Uh, everything is about the redemption of Israel, bringing them to where they're redeemed as a people. So yes, we would hold that the tribulation has already occurred. It then moves into that timeline. Okay, so the question is, is this time uh, the time of Israel's blessing? It is leading up to it. And so what's happening is is that for Israel to receive the blessings that were promised to them by God, they need to be obedient. Really, they need to be redeemed. And so the, the tribulation is bringing them to the point where they are redeemed as a people. And then because they are redeemed as a people, then now they can enjoy the blessings that God promised them because they're no longer a stiff-necked and obstinate people, right? And so because of disobedience, that's why they enjoyed, that's why they, they, they reaped the consequences of their rebellion, and that was cursing. When they are redeemed and they are obedient, they're going to reap the blessings of that obedience in, the, in that millennial kingdom. And now when we get to Ezekiel here in a little bit, we'll see that um, the reason that there has to be a physical kingdom is because in the Old Testament, on, on a number of occasions, we run into this period of time that doesn't fit with now, but it doesn't fit with the eternal state. We read of, well, we'll get there in a minute. So, it is going to lead to the time of their blessing because they are now redeemed and they're now obedient. Does that make sense? Okay, Cherie. So, I understand that this is the time for Israel to be redeemed in the tribulation, but then also Gentiles can be redeemed also, right? Gentile, okay, so the, the question is, uh, the tribulation is about the redemption of Israel, but can Gentiles be redeemed as well? And that answer is yes. The difference being is that they are coming along basically as collateral. It's primarily about Israel, and yet God is still going to be at work and still redeeming uh, people for himself. Other questions? This is... And, and, okay, good. If you have questions, let's, let's ask them, okay? Now... There's three primary views of the kingdom. You have one that is referred to as the amillennial view, and you have the postmillennial view and the premillennial view. Now, we did an entire hour on the amillennial and postmillennial views when we studied the book of Revelation, and you can still find that on the website. So, I don't want to deal with those today because I need every minute I can get just to talk about premillennial. So, the idea, now amillennial is a little bit misleading. They don't say that there's no kingdom, they just say it's not a thousand years and it's spiritual, it's not physical. In fact, amillennial and postmillennial both would hold that we are in the millennial kingdom now. Satan's bound. Now, And the way that they get to that is Satan is bound in that he can no longer deceive the nations and prevent the spread of the gospel. And then there's some other uh, things that would go in there, but then again, let's, let's, let's concentrate on premillennialism. So, what are the tenets of premillennialism? Number one, it employs a consistent, literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. Now, what's a hermeneutic? What are hermeneutics? Method of interpretation. How do we understand the Bible? Uh, how is it that we can, we can read the Bible? And what tools would we use to understand what the Bible is saying so that we know what it means and therefore, what does it require of us? The hermeneutic that that we use and that many use is literal, it's taking words at their meaning, it's grammatical, using the rules of grammar and syntax in order to understand the point that is being made, And historical, there's a context to what is being said and how it's being said. So using those principles in order to understand what God is communicating so that we can obey him in that manner, in that matter. Now, there are some who will use a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic in virtually all of the Bible, except when you come to prophecy. And even in that way, it's not most prophecy, it just seems to be the stuff that hasn't yet been fulfilled. So when you have a book, and there are many who would look at the book of Revelation and call that apocalyptic literature. Putting that label on the book of Revelation then gives license to use a different hermeneutic to understand what God is revealing in that book. And usually that hermeneutic becomes more allegorical. What is the meaning behind the meaning? Now there's a problem when you get into allegorical interpretation. What's the problem? Okay, you're inserting man's wisdom. Okay, you're walking away from what the author clearly stated. When you're looking for meaning behind the meaning, who determines that? The reader is determining that. And there's a very basic hermeneutical principle. Who determines the meaning of a text? Oh, come on, I'm hoping, I was hoping I was going to hear that one shouted out. The author does. The author determines the intent, not the reader, not a group of people. And so when you find yourself in a Bible study and, and, you, and you run into this, this comment well, what this means to me, I, I, that's danger Will Robinson, okay? No. No. The author determines that, and anything then in the Bible is God determines what the meaning is, not us. And so, one of the tenets of premillennialism, it employs a consistent Literal, grammatical, historical, hermeneutic. So when you study the book of Colossians, when you study the book of Romans, when you study the book of Luke, when you study the book of, of Genesis, all of those, the same principles that you're using to determine, to interpret all of these non-prophetic books, you use those same principles when you're looking at the book of Revelation In particular, you you apply the same hermeneutics. Second, premillennialism maintains a distinction between Israel and God, excuse me, between Israel and the church in God's program. That does not mean that there are two different ways of being saved. It does not mean that. How were people saved in the Old Testament? By grace through faith. Why was Abraham considered a friend of God? That's right, he believed God. He took God at his word. So when God takes him outside and says, Abram, look up, you see all those stars? That's how many kids you're going to have. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. And that comment was made when Abraham had how many children? Zero. Zero. And he's an old guy. If Abraham was in the room, he'd be the old guy in the room right now. Carolyn is in Michigan. Her aunt, her her one surviving aunt, is turning 101 this coming week. She'd just be a little older than Abram was when Isaac was born, right? And so Abraham believed God. That is the way that salvation has always come. Do you take God at his word? It has never been an issue of works. You can't work your way into heaven. You've never been able to work your way into heaven, ever. The sacrifices... In the Old Testament, we're pointing forward to Christ. And so again, if you took God at his word and you obeyed what was revealed, then you were redeemed. Third, premillennialism maintains that Daniel's 70th week is yet future. And that's going to distinguish premillennialism from something called preterism. Preterism. The, the, the idea of preterism is that's something that's already occurred. And so when you run into folks who say, you know what, Jesus has already come back. Jesus came back in 70 AD. They're a preterist. They fall into that, uh, that form of interpretation. And preterists, are gonna, when it comes to the, the millennial kingdom, they're going to be in line with, the, with those that would be amillennial or postmillennial. They're going to be postmillennial, actually, because that, ah, mill. Fourth, premillennialism maintains that Christ will personally rule over the nations of the earth in a physical kingdom. And it is the only view that holds that. Now, there are some who would say that premillennialism is a one trick pony. It's based on one passage, and that passage is in Revelation chapter 20. Now, there's no question that Revelation 20 applies to the millennial kingdom. But what happens in Revelation 20 is that's where you get a more specific timeline as far as when events occur relative to each other, and you get the length of the kingdom. The fact of the matter is, the millennial kingdom is referred to in multiple passages back in the Old Testament. So let's start running through. We've actually got time to do several of these. Flip to Psalm 2. Well, since we're just starting with it, turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 2. We'll start flipping after we get from Psalm 2. I forgot my glasses. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, "You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron; you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment; take warning, O judges of the earth." Worship the Lord with reverence. If you've got a King James or a new King James, that's going to say kiss the son there. Worship the Lord with reverence. Excuse me, that's in verse 12. And rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's a coming kingdom. Christ is going to be ruling from Mount Zion in Jerusalem over the nations of the earth. That's a physical kingdom. Now you're saying, well, now wait a minute. Okay, let's keep going. Now we can flip. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1, get the pickup. The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah in Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again... Will they learn war? Now, has there ever been a period of time when that has been fulfilled? Can you think of a period of time, and you can go back a couple thousand years if you want, has there ever been a time where there hasn't been war on this planet? How many conflicts are going on right now? Yeah, because you've got kind of official wars. You know, you've got Russia has invaded Ukraine, and that's been going on now for over a year. And there's other places where, uh, you know, perhaps it's not immediate conflict. Uh, North and South Korea have pretty much still been at war with each other since the 1950s. China is rattling their saber, talking about going over and taking Taiwan forcibly. There's always conflict. And so here, we're talking about where there's going to be a global rule. It is going to be centered in Jerusalem, and we're going to have a time, basically, of global peace, And God and Christ is ruling over the nations. Now, Christ is not named here in Isaiah, but who's doing the ruling from Jerusalem? That's God. Flip a few pages and go to Isaiah chapter 11. Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked." Who's that referring to? That's Jesus. That's Messiah. Is there anybody else that this can refer to? No. There's no one else that this can refer to. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious." In fact, you could even, uh, then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand, the remnants of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And so here again, you have a time still in the future where Jesus is ruling. He's judging and ruling by righteousness and faithfulness. Check it out that all of a sudden, animals that normally would fall into two categories, you have prey and you have predators. And yet there's, no now, there's now no distinction between the two. When's the last, well, I suppose in a petting zoo, You can have the lion laying down with something else. I saw that once. We took the kids up to a a place up, I think it was in Bandon, Oregon. You know, and there was, I think, it was a snow leopard that had been raised with some other type of animal that normally it would eat, and they were chilling together, and it was kind of cool to see. But I'll guarantee you, if you were to take those animals and have them growing up out here in a remote part of this county, what would be the relationship between those two? Hi, your food, I'm hungry. We had sheep for a while, and we would have mountain lions get in and get our sheep. Why? Because that's what mountain lions do. They eat other animals. That's not going to happen in this kingdom that's coming. Turn a few more pages to Isaiah chapter 24. Verse 21, so it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. So here you have the hosts of heaven confined. When does that happen? That's during the millennial kingdom. So Satan and his hordes, no longer have influence. And they're going to get released for a little time, and then what? They lose, and they end up in the lake of fire. Isaiah chapters 50, excuse me, 65 and 66. Now we're going to cherry pick in here. Isaiah 65, 20. Now, Isaiah 65 and 66 is one of these places where things get compressed. And sometimes it is difficult to be able to see that, okay, yes, this is actually the eternal state versus this is the millennial kingdom. Chapter 65, verse 20. No longer will there there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of a 100, And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. Now, is that now? No. I've been a pallbearer for an infant. How often do you actually encounter somebody who actually makes it to 100? Now, I realize some of us are starting to look that way, but we haven't actually made it yet. So we've never had this time where you've had these incredibly long lifespans. Yet, what is stated here in that verse? Is this the eternal state? Why? Oh, now, that's nice because I had a head shaking right away and I had a no right here. Why isn't it? They're still dying. They're still dying. Now, they're living for a long time. Right? But there's still death. And what's one of the things that we know about the eternal state? There ain't no dying anymore. Death has been conquered. So, it's not now. It's later. Where does that fit in? That fits in in the Millennial Kingdom. Turn over to No, you don't need to go to, you don't need to turn there. We can talk about Ezekiel. Now, the last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel has 48 chapters. The last nine of those chapters deal with the millennial kingdom. It starts with Ezekiel getting a verbal set of blueprints about a temple. And this temple is massive. It dwarfs by multiple times the size of Herod's temple. So remember that Solomon built a temple, and it was relatively small. That temple was destroyed in 586 by Nebuchadnezzar. Judah' exiled. They come back under Ezra and Nehemiah, and they rebuild the temple and it's smaller than Solomon's. That's why the old people who could actually remember the original temple were weeping and wailing because this one couldn't hold a candle to the original. Now Herod the Great took that temple and expanded it so that it was in fact larger than Solomon's temple. It was still much smaller than a football field. If you look at Ezekiel's temple, Ezekiel's temple covers several football fields in size. It's huge. It's never yet been built. So you have these uh, blueprints for this temple, and then you start to see that there are some changes. There's a change in how the land is distributed. If you look at a map of uh, Israel in the time of Joshua in the time of the judges, you would see that the tribes are somewhat scattered. In Ezekiel, when it talks about a redistribution of the land, it is very orderly. In fact, it basically looks like a multi-layer cake. You've got the temple in the center and you've got several layers under and you've got more layers than that above. And they're like strata. So one on top of the other. Uh, It's like property lines. You can look, there's the property line there, and it extends in a nice straight line all the way over to there. And so you have a redistribution of the land. You have all the same offerings in this particular kingdom, but you don't have the same festivals. Now, what is arguably... What was the most important day on the Jewish calendar? What single day would be the most important day on the Jewish calendar? Say it louder. Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where the high priest goes in, he makes an offering for his own sin, and then he makes an offering for the sin of the people. The Day of Atonement is no longer celebrated in this kingdom. Pentecost is no longer celebrated in this kingdom. The Feast of Trumpets is no longer celebrated in this kingdom. You still have the Feast of Tabernacles. You still have Passover. You still have uh, first fruits. And you have a new one for the new moon. So in other words, the festivals are changed. Now why in that kingdom would you no longer need to have the day of atonement? Okay, exactly, because the atonement has been made. Now remember, in the Old Testament, that was looking forward to Christ. Now Christ has come. He's made atonement. So, why still have sacrifices? Not a rhetorical question. Why still have sacrifices? Okay? There are still sin offerings. There are still guilt offerings. Actually, I kind of like the idea of those sacrifices. I kind of wish we had them now. Sin is costly. Sin costs you something. It's a price that you end up paying because you've offended a holy God. Now, don't please don't get me wrong here, all right? Have those sins been forgiven? Have they been atoned under Christ? Yes, they have. But yet, is there not still? When we sin, when we choose to disobey God, I wonder if that would influence how I think and how I act if I knew it was gonna hit me in my pocketbook. Might I be so flippant with my speech? Might I not be as careful as I ought to be because I can ask God to forgive me and he will. And I go on my merry way. There are sacrifices. There's still death. There's still sin in that kingdom. Now, who's committing the sin, by the way? What's happening in the kingdom? Is it growing? Is it staying the same? Is it diminishing? What's happening? Okay, people are still having children. Okay, there's people who are growing up in this kingdom. Why is that? Because not everybody died to get into that kingdom. You have some who were redeemed, but still alive at the second coming. They don't have glorified bodies. We will. So we're not going to be having kids, but they will. And so you have children being born. And again, why have that period of time? Here's the other thing that that comes into play. Right now, because because Satan is the accuser of the brethren and he is a deceiver, you remember uh, Geraldine? Flip Wilson, back in the, I guess that would be early 70s, maybe even mid-70s, what was Geraldine's uh, big statement? That was was her common theme. The devil made me do it. Well, people aren't going to have that excuse in the millennial kingdom. It's going to demonstrate just how fallen man is all on his own. You know, those nine chapters in Ezekiel, if you separated those out and made it its own book second ezekiel it would be longer than 36 other books of the bible it would be longer than the book of hebrews by word count we're not talking about in you know a couple of verses in a a, a relatively obscure book. It's almost 20% of Ezekiel's prophecy. It's 48 chapters in his book. There's a lot of material there. So if it doesn't mean what it says, no, there's really not a temple, that's spiritual. No, it's really, you know, there's not another kingdom, that's spiritual too. Then what does it mean? So sin is greatly diminished, but sin and death yet remain. And you can keep going. Amos 9, 8 to 15. Micah 4, 1 to 8. In the latter days, God's house and his word are established on Mount Zion, where Christ rules. You don't need weapons of war anymore because the nations are at peace. Zephaniah 3, 14 to 20. And then Zechariah 8 and Zechariah 14. Both talking about, well, Zechariah 8, God dwelling in the midst of his people, long lifespans, the people regathered, enjoying great prosperity, and the nations are seeking after God and his word. So, why are your pastors premillennial? One, it's the only view that consistently uses the literal, grammatical, historical, hermeneutic. Second, it's the only view that recognizes that God will fulfill in time all of his promises to Israel. Has anybody heard the term replacement theology? Couple of you have. What's replacement theology? The church replaces Israel and thereby inherits all of the blessings that were promised to Israel. What is the natural outgrowth out of that theology? How do you view Israel if in your theology the church now stands in Israel's place? Okay, so they're like all the other nations, lost in need of the gospel. Now here's where theology dictates practice. Here's one place. If the church has replaced Israel, who does the land belong to? Let's make it specific. Who does the land belong to now? Does it belong to Israel? Does it belong to the Palestinians? There was an American president back in the late 70s, a Christian man. Yet, if you were to ask him who was the rightful possessor of that land, he would say the Palestinians. Israel does no longer has a valid claim to the land. They forfeited that claim when they rejected Messiah. So they no longer have a right to it. Now the reason he believes that is because he believes that those blessings have now been transferred to the church. A number of years ago, we went to Israel with Sean and Juliet, and while we were there, we visited Yad Vashem, the Jewish Holocaust Museum. Now, if you read in a tour book, they tell you, if you're gonna go to Yad Vashem, don't plan anything else for the rest of the day. And that's good advice. It's utterly horrifying. They brought down rail cars after the war. There's an exhibit where there's a rail car, and there are mountains of shoes taken by the Nazis from Jews who are going to go get gassed. They have a place called the Hall of Remembrance. You walk in, it's, in, it's, in a, it's like a huge cylinder. And so you come in, and you're coming in about halfway up the cylinder. As you, as you walk into the room, there are rows upon rows upon rows of binders. Those binders are contain the research for identifying and telling the life story of each of the six million Jews that were exterminated in the Holocaust. It's overwhelming. And the worst part was looking at one of the exhibits where it's talking about the response of Christians to the Holocaust. How many Christians turned, turned a blind eye because the Jews were simply reaping the consequences of their choice of rejecting Messiah. They're cursed by God and they're, they're deserving of what they get. I got to tell you, As a Christian, that's hard to take. Why is it hard to take? Because at the time when it happened, it was largely true. God's going to fulfill his promises to Israel. And he's going to do it in time. And they're going to enjoy the blessings that God gave them just as surely as they are now enjoying the curses from their disobedience. It's the only view where the creation mandate is fulfilled. Why? What was was the purpose? What was man's mission in the Garden of Eden? Be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. So what was man supposed to do over the earth? One word, short word, starts with R, four letters. He's supposed to rule over the earth. Now, did Adam succeed in that mandate? No, he did not. But the last Adam will. Christ is going to fulfill that. He's going to succeed where Adam failed. Jesus offered. The kingdom of God is at hand, right? made that comment several times to the Jews when he was walking the earth. The kingdom of God is at hand. Did they accept that kingdom? No. They didn't. They rejected him as their ruler. They rejected him as their king. On the day that Jesus ascended back into heaven, the disciples asked him a question. Acts 1.6. Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And what was Jesus' comment to them? How did Jesus answer them? It's not for you to know. The times and the epochs, right? So did Jesus tell them, "Hey guys, um, go back to the lecture last Thursday because we talked about this. I answered this question for you. There's no kingdom. I'm sorry, you forfeited that. Did Jesus say that to him?" No. No. It is yet to come. Now, that is a lot of material. You all have hung in there nicely? Are there questions? Of course. <laughs> Okay, so for the tape, the, the criticism that's often leveled by those who hold a post-millennial view is that uh, because we're going to be rescued out of this time, why the need for evangelism? Why the need to proclaim truth? And um, now, just to, I'm going to answer that in a second. Those who hold a post-millennial view, their view is that things are going to generally get better and better and better. That Christianity is going to become the predominant view in society. And basically, when the society gets good enough, then Jesus is going to come back. And so, um, in, in that view, we're in the millennial kingdom now, the gospel is going to go forward, and more and more people are going to be coming in line with what God commands, and then we're going to go in and then we're going to have heaven. So how do we respond to that? Number one, our job is to proclaim the gospel and God is going to redeem all of those who are going to be redeemed. The problem that I have as a a man, as a Christian man, as a Christian... uh, I don't know who those people are. I can't look at people and see, do you have a red E on your forehead? That you're one of God's elect? I don't know who those people are. So, how do I know how to preach the gospel to them? preach it to everybody. If you preach it to everybody, then you're going to catch the ones that are elect. They're going to hear the truth. And so the idea... um, And there's another form, by the way, you have what was called hyper-Calvinism, where it was, well, since God is going to redeem, and since God is going to rescue all of his elect, it doesn't matter if I talk at all, right? Because they're going to somehow get the message and come to faith. Now, again, if we are going to be faithful and obedient to God, then we're going to speak of him. We're going to preach the truth, and we're going to disciple the nations and uh, proclaim the gospel. Now, we do that here. We do that here. We've been up in Alaska since I was reading some of our Christmas letters last night. There are so many things in the Christmas letters, our, our family Christmas letters, that I'd forgotten. I was rolling on the floor laughing That's some of the things my kids have said over the years. 2004 was when we first went to Alaska to do construction at the Bible camp. 2005 would have been our first year going to the camp itself. So we've been going to that camp now for 18 years. Why? Yeah. I mean, how many people in here have been to the Bible camp? I'm looking at Alan back. Okay, many of us have been to the Bible camp. You know what? I haven't been to the camp since the construction crew, so I've never been there for camp. But many of you have. Why did you go there? <laughs> you went to speak the gospel, right? And so again, the thing there's something where we need to be careful when we're when we're talking about things. For, there are some good men who would hold to all millennial and post millennial views. They're good Christian men. So this is this is a family discussion. Sorry, I just had a mental train wreck. It's not. Oh, okay, this is what it was. We have to be careful that we don't create straw men. That, you know, we're going to build this, this person who holds certain views. But we're not, typically when you're building a straw man, what are you doing? Yeah, you're making up somebody who holds a view that really isn't what the other side would say that view is. And we need to be careful of that. And not... uh, That view of, you know, you guys who are premillennial, you just don't preach the gospel, that's a straw man. Now, is it true of some? Probably. Is it true of all? No way, no how. And so... Again, that, that is not a characteristic of, I'll say, many of those who would be premillennial. Good question. All right, it's 10.09. Anybody else want to dive in here at the last minute? Or are you looking forward to having a little bit of a break? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that you are coming back. Jesus is going to come. He's going to make all things right. Sin is going to be judged. Satan's going to be sent to the lake of fire. All those who follow him are going to go there too. And Father, we do pray that we would be active in proclaiming your truth, that you would still be rescuing those who are lost and on their way to an eternal hell. Help us to be faithful in proclaiming your truth that they in fact could see their desperate need and repent and believe the gospel. Lord, thank you that you're faithful to your promises. You're trustworthy, you're reliable, and we are so grateful. Help us to be faithful and reliable in our service to you.